Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Almira Bayrosley. Rosie! Coming, sir. Here I am, sir. Voice-controlled machines that talk back. A supercomputer in every pocket. Predictive algorithms. I do believe they think I am some sort of god. In the 20th century, these and many other technological innovations seemed entirely imaginative, confined to science fiction. Not anymore. Your message to mom says, we're on our way. From Alexa and Siri to Zoom and Microsoft Teams, digital technologies have become indispensable to our lives. What do you think people did before Alexa? The virtual has become the new normal. It is a brave new world and getting braver, thanks in part to the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, the global crisis is hurting business, but not all companies are losing money. Let's take a look at some corporate winners here. Now, with more people working from home, demand for technology that enables online group meetings has been growing rapidly. But are these new technologies, governed by a handful of enormously influential companies, our saviors or our downfall? As misinformation and so-called fake news continues to be rapidly distributed on the internet, our reality has become increasingly shaped by false information. Facebook may have mishandled data for more than 50 million users. That allowed Cambridge Analytica to access data to try to sway users' votes. This information was used to create ads that turned us against each other and that were deliberately divisive. The internet was supposed to make us, you know, more savvy, right? How did we get to this point? Marita Shockey joins me to discuss how big tech has shaped our politics and economies and how, if left unchecked, these companies may gain unprecedented power in the wake of the pandemic. Hello, Marita. Hi, how are you? Marita is the International Policy Director of the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford University. How are things in Amsterdam? You know, it's strange. They're increasingly normal. She joins me from her home in Amsterdam. Um, I'm going to start recording just in case, right? Great. Marita, I want to just start with the global economy. Obviously, we're seeing it in a tailspin. And COVID-19 has really hit a number of industries really hard. The retail industry, obviously, travel and tourism, hospitality. But at the same time, it's been a boon for many technology firms. And... I'm thinking of companies like Amazon, Google, and Facebook. Will they be the true winners of the pandemic, as many believe? Well, I think we may have to distinguish between economic benefits, because especially the ones that are ad-based, like Facebook and Google, I think they're also struggling with uh, lower ad revenues. But on another level, their position is solidifying because everybody lives uh, goes to school, works, gets entertained, uh, finds news, basically does everything online these days. And, and I think we've never been more grateful for the open internet and the World Wide Web, but these big commercial platforms, these big commercial ad companies are uh, obviously becoming an ever more important part of, of the lives of more people. And I think they're, they're stepping into a space also with notions of contact tracing apps where they can also enter into more sensitive areas of reaching people, like for healthcare reasons. And I think that that's the space to watch. So I don't look at this as an economic challenge, but more as a power challenge. And now that you touch on power, obviously that is something that has concerned a lot of political leaders. 
even before the pandemic, we've seen, you know, political leaders here in the United States like Elizabeth Warren, who's called for regulating and possibly even breaking up some of these tech giants. What this is about is about competition. It's about all those little businesses and startup businesses and entrepreneurs who want to put their products on Amazon or on Google and who are at an enormous competitive disadvantage because Amazon or Google, if they like the money they see that you're making because they get all the information, they decide to go into competition with you and put their product on page one and your product back on page six so and kill your business. Obviously, we've seen these companies, as you pointed out, provide valuable benefits from not only information, contact tracing, but also allowing us to be flexible to work from home. Is there a case for big tech? Well, big tech is already here. And I actually wonder whether politicians who were so critical up until the pandemic will remain equally critical and focused on the principles that should not be disrupted. I see Elizabeth Warren's efforts in the antitrust space really as a principled policy, not so much one against tech companies, but rather to say, why would tech companies evade a number of policies that apply to all other types of companies? And antitrust is one category where I believe we need to really uh, make sure that, that the rules are enforceable and that we understand what antitrust and competition law means in a digital era. But I also uh, have a lot of concerns about questions of access to information to make sure that companies through their algorithms and machine learning do not discriminate intendedly or unintendedly. So I believe that we need to go back and, and perhaps even more firmly in this time of crisis to the very principles that are the anchors of of our quality of life. Uh, I'm thinking about rule of law principles, democracy principles. And for that, we really need to balance that very a significant power of big tech that is that is here, that is growing and expanding, and balance it with counterweights, oversight, accountability. And, and I believe there is a bigger need than ever to make sure that there is that kind of check on power. I've never seen unchecked power leading to good results, even if there may be convenience or, you know, cheap or free services provided. There is a price elsewhere, and the public interest also needs to be preserved and protected. And so I'm hoping that politicians are not, let's say, distracted by charm offensives by some of these companies or by the changing public opinion where some people say, well, I'll do anything to be able to move more, to be out of lockdown. And if it means downloading apps that could be very invasive when it comes to surveillance or privacy, they, they're more than happy to. So I think we have to be mindful and, and watch critically how public opinion may change and how tech companies may really try to take advantage of this momentum and not lose sight of what was already at stake before the pandemic and is even more at stake right now. You mentioned protecting democracy and the rule of law. Many are worried about Beijing's heavy-handed use of digital technology. Mobile data is becoming a key tool against COVID-19 in China. Across the country, local authorities are increasingly working hand-in-hand -hand with the technology provided by health tracking apps. And we've seen that in play not only in how China has responded to the coronavirus, but also in 
its recent crackdown in Hong Kong. China's ruling Communist Party has set in motion a controversial national security law for Hong Kong following pro-democracy protests last year. Hong Kongers from all walks of life protested in the heart of the city's financial district on Wednesday, this time against a controversial national security bill. And this is a move that is seen as a major blow to the city's freedoms. Will the pandemic help determine whether the world will follow Europe and the U.S. in how it uses technology or China? That's a, it's a great question because there's many lessons to be learned from the Chinese model in this sense, right? I mean, I've heard people saying, well, a centralized system uh, or, you know, more more authoritarian system is better equipped to steer people in their behavior. So to basically require restrictions, to enforce lockdowns, to have a heavy-handed response. And that may well be the case. However, uh, I think one of the biggest challenges that China uh, has seen is that if people are afraid to speak, if there is no freedom of expression, even on the part of doctors, for example, if doctors disappear uh, after they have alleged that there is a, is a challenge with, with a virus that could turn into a pandemic, then we should really ask ourselves, has the model helped? I don't think it has. And I also think that there are freedoms and rights that should never be sacrificed. And too often in, in the name of solving a crisis, remember uh, after 9-11, the, the argument of choice was always countering terrorism and civil liberties should simply step aside in order to allow for countering terrorism and fighting radicalization. And in many ways, I think the privacy laws that are adopted these days are still an answer to those excesses in giving power to states, intelligence services, but also increasingly companies to actually uh, gather all the data and, and intelligence about people in the name of solving many, many problems or, or offering convenient services. And we see the same tendency now with the pandemic where people may have a slightly more short-term perspective on uh, the promises that come with, you know, apps and how they may help us deal with the pandemic, but the consequences of increasing surveillance, uh, questions about who gets power over what information and over which people with which uh, checks and balances, institutions to, to have uh, oversight and accountability, I think remain incredibly important. And uh, if we want to see an alternative model to the one that I think democracy should aspire to, we can really see it playing out in China where the price of freedom and uh, the lack of the protection of rights of so many people in China is, is really one that I think we should learn the lessons of how not to proceed. I want to turn to what happens after the pandemic and as we continue to open our economies and move towards some sort of normalcy, we'll really need to look to healthy companies to kickstart growth. That could actually make oversight and regulation of the tech sector even more difficult. How can we carry out the crucial tasks without hampering the recovery? Well, how many jobs do tech companies actually create? Um, how much growth to the public sector, the public purse, do they actually generate? I think it is not proportionate to uh, the profits that they're making. I've made the case for taxing them now. I think it is long overdue, but the necessity of having more uh, resources to deal with unprecedented unemployment. Look at the United States. I, I work there now, but I am European, so I have 
you know, two perspectives. I think the, the lack of any buffer for a crisis that the platform economy or the so-called gig economy with so many uh, contract workers has revealed is extraordinary. And if you want to avoid a complete crisis of inequality and of poverty and of uh, hopelessness, then there have to be government programs and they have to be funded somehow. And if you look at the uh, revenues and profits of the big tech companies, let's stick with, with the biggest American tech companies, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, then you can really see that there is a lack of, of balance between their profits and what they're contributing to the to the public and to the society at large. And it always strikes me as remarkable how many CEOs are, you know, proponents of a universal basic income, but then don't even want to pay taxes now. I think now is the time to tax these tech companies as part of the broader question of, of recovery and making sure that all the crisis programs that unfortunately need to be put in place right now can actually be uh, provided for by governments. And in the U.S., the lack of such social security systems and a bit of a buffer in the public interest will really uh, be revealed by this pandemic. And even in Europe, where we do have a stronger system, questions of how to keep it affordable and, and how governments can pay for it are, are very, very urgent here, too. So you just mentioned the need to tax these larger tech companies. But what does that look like on a global scale? Last year, France and the United Kingdom talked about a digital tax, and the U.S. was very much opposed to it. Well, there's few global taxes. So I think we have to be realistic in, in ambitions and managing such programs. Actually, it is very common and normal and legitimate for open democratic societies to decide on the tax regimes that they wish for. Now, clearly, digitization and um, global tech companies have created a new reality. So I think it would be ideal if there could be a cross-border effort towards taxation as well. And so for a long time, both in the context of the OECD and now in the context of the G20, there have been conversations about a um, digital tax regime. And I'm hopeful that the urgency of the moment will actually change the dynamics where the U.S. is slamming the brakes, threatening trade wars, as the current president likes to do, uh, and even waging trade wars with allies. I don't think that's the answer to a global crisis that will require uh, global cooperation to solve. And I think, frankly, digital tax or tax on digital services is a low-hanging fruit for a sector that has really evaded taxes for a long, long time, while uh, revenues are, are actually made globally as well. So hopefully the cross-border nature of the services will be answered with a cross-border nature of a tax regime, appreciating very well that a fully global system uh, will, be, will be challenging. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020 that's podcast 2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org. 
One of the things that you hear a lot of the tech companies say in defense of not being taxed is that the government can't be as innovative as the technology firms. And certainly you've seen companies like Google and Facebook roll out a number of initiatives for small businesses. Um, For example, Facebook Shops lets small businesses sell goods and services online in an effort to boost business. But are such innovations a lifeline for independent retailers, or is it just a noose? Well, I think the question whether competition is helped and or drowned out, because, you know, there's plenty of examples, for example, from uh, the Amazon platform where uh, Amazon's view or the platform's view of the kinds of flows in retail, which products are popular, and then creating these products themselves, right? Like an Amazon version of them to be competing with other market players has led to major questions about antitrust. So it's always very important to make sure that the competition is not drowned out. And also to think about what kind of a society we would like. Do we want a couple of monopolists to deliver everything? Or would we like to have uh, spaces where we can walk around and, and purchase something where we want mom and pop stores to have a fair chance? I think that the most charming areas in the world, uh, looking around me here in Amsterdam, where I'm where I'm spending this um, pandemic, actually the the fact that there are boutiques that they are viable and that they can be family businesses, not depending on big global players, has has a lot of character uh, to add to the city. The other part of your question was about are these innovative companies and does that justify them not paying taxes? Which I think is a is a strange argument where actually. Governments have uh, a lot of blame to go around. In the Netherlands, we had this very controversial case of Booking.com. I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with that company, another platform that, you know, may uh, present itself as helping hotels and and bed and breakfasts to rent out their rooms or to share their facilities. But actually the cuts that booking uh, takes and the sort of strangling uh, contracts that they, that they uh, provide have, have led to a lot of concern on the part of smaller hotels, for example. Now, having said that their headquarters are in the Netherlands and the company made extraordinary profits. And instead of creating a buffer for difficult times, they actually bought back their own stocks and they profited from what in, in our system is called an innovation box. So basically a tax exemption granted by the Dutch government to innovative companies. And so they had uh, almost 2 billion uh, euros in, you know, innovation benefits, so to say. So tax exemptions for being an innovative company. Uh, and instead of actually innovating through R and D, they basically bought their own stocks and paid it to, to shareholders. So. I would like to see more scrutiny of some of these models when it comes to the impact on society at large, the balance between privately earned profits and publicly shared burdens, right? Because right now, uh, when there's unemployment or when there is a uh, state aid program to uh, avoid unemployment, which we have in the Netherlands and a lot of other countries have, Companies like Booking are also there to hold up their hands and to say, okay, subsidize the jobs that we, that we provide. And I think that was never, never the idea about entrepreneurship and, uh, and doing business. You know, business entails risk. We understand that's why profits are uh, a part of the equation, but you cannot just have the profits for yourself and all the costs for society. And, and some of these examples have been extremely revealing and undoubtedly will need, lead to new, 
calculations about, you know, what is the right way to go, even in tax havens that, you know, some of some of the countries involved uh, really have become. Marita, we started this conversation by talking about the power that big tech is likely to gain because of the coronavirus. Right now, we're seeing companies like Google and Apple using their technologies to lead contact tracing efforts. The COVID-19 tracing technology will use Bluetooth to help notify someone if they've been in contact with someone who's infected. If these technologies are really so important to public health and safety, should they actually be in the hands of private companies? Or should these firms be classified as public utilities and regulated accordingly? Yeah, that's another big question about how big and powerful some of these tech giants are uh, and the extent to which the services they provide fulfill essential needs, right? And I think with regard to the contact tracing app specifically and the criteria uh, that have been proposed by Apple and Google together, the question is really in general, what are these apps supposed to do and, and are governments not placing too much hope in the digital solutions. I think we've seen a lot of tech utopianism and determinism in the sense of what an app or technology can do to fight COVID. Sure, it would be great if technology can support doctors and help society understand how it can open up without jeopardizing public health. But I'm not convinced that the need to have such um, apps and, and technological solutions involved is so vital as it is promised by some of these companies. And I think it's a real trap, both for, for companies, but also for governments, because if they overpromise and underdeliver, they may well lose a lot of trust at the moment where they need it most. So I think there's a lot at stake and it's important to stay critical, to stay focused and to look at what kind of a society the ever more influential tech use will lead to. Uh, even if privacy concerns and cybersecurity risks have been mitigated, the notion of being tracked and traced, I think, has an impact on society. And I, I want to caution against the normalizing of ever more surveillance when we should already be concerned about, you know, so much uh, surveillance and, and use of data on people for a variety of reasons. And stepping into healthcare space and very, very personal data and information is a very, very critical and, and tricky step that we should not take lightly at all. You mentioned now that there is a risk of not stepping up against big surveillance. What are the risks of not resisting big tech? What could our future look like? Well, I think we've already seen a trend of uh, increasing privatization where digitization essentially equals privatization. The imbalance or asymmetry between what big tech companies know about us individually, about us as societies, what kind of power to move markets or to move societies, if you think about it in the election context, uh, these business models have, uh, I think is not only a question for antitrust authorities or for you know, tax authorities, it is a broader question about what is the impact on democracy? Do we principally believe that the rule of law is at stake when so much governance, essentially, of such essential parts of our lives, the building of our information architecture, the organizing of information flows through that architecture, impacting the way we consume news, the way our public debate takes place, the way in which uh, information is, is organized. You know, is that a desirable 
outcome. And I think we need a more democracy-driven, rule of law-driven lens uh, when we try to assess these questions, not just about, you know, is it time to break up big tech? Has there been uh, yet another scandalous incident? But to connect the dots and to ask ourselves, you know, if the rule of law, and I I firmly believe uh, it does, if the rule of law provides for the core foundations of our quality of life, our liberties, our freedoms that are hard fought, uh, the protection of human rights, then what happens when governance and setting standards and regulating our societies and information flows is increasingly in private hands? I think that's a worrying development that needs to be corrected. Marita, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? Oh, I get a lot of hope from my students at Stanford. I've uh, started teaching after serving in the European Parliament for 10 years, and I I was very excited to go to such a great university in the heart of Silicon Valley to, you know, explore the politics of the big tech companies and understand what motivates people. Uh, and I was also very ambitious about discussing and teaching the rule of law and artificial intelligence, which I've I've been doing for the past quarter. Uh, I couldn't have expected how interesting and curious and also critical the students would be. Um, I've put together a group that I call Wonks and Techies, a group of students that's interested at the intersection of policy and technology, anything uh, from freshmen to PhDs. And it's it's a wonderful group of people with whom we have discussions. We invite guest speakers. There's a mentoring program. And I see the thinking and the appreciation of the responsibility of their generation very, very clearly, especially those with technological skills uh, and the choices, you know, between going into a big tech company and what that means, or perhaps, you know, going into government, trying to improve government, to innovate government, to think about the value of democracy and uh, an international rules-based order together. And, And it's really exciting to see how people perceive their own role and and responsibility at this moment in time. So my students at Stanford, without a question, have a sort of dream that the uh, the person who invents uh, the next big civic tech success uh, has been um, you know inspired by some of the discussions that we're having about the rule of law and and technology. Marita, thank you. Thank you too. It was wonderful to talk to you. That was Marita Shake. She is the International Policy Director of the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford University. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna.